The scripture is Ephesians 5, 1 through 10, and that's on page 1159 in the Pew Bible. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Thank you, Naomi. Would you all bow your heads with me? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to gather together. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon us. God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us right where we are. Lord, we are endeavoring into a topic, a subject, uh, which is very much a hot topic in our culture, a very controversial one, one that is very sensitive for many people. And God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us right where we are. And God, that your truth and your grace Lord, is what I pray would come through in this message as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I find myself doing as a Christian, and particularly as a minister in our culture today, I actually find myself constantly needing to argue and show that Christianity is much more open-minded than most people seem to think. Uh, that Christianity is, is, is really incredibly open-minded in terms of uh, the ways of our world and, and, and the way in which we can approach life and culture. And, and I feel like I need to argue that because there is this impression amongst many people that Christians just tend to be incredibly closed-minded about a lot of things. And the reality is, is that I think historically Christians have tended from time to time to be very close-minded, and I think to be close-minded in ways that really is not at all uh, something that comes from the Bible. And so I find myself all the time uh, trying to, to demonstrate that, that Christianity in particular, that the Bible does not call uh, for, for close-mindedness, that it calls for an open-mindedness, uh, uh, things like an open-mindedness towards dancing or even something like alcohol, or that there's an open-mindedness to the way in which these things should be handled with regards to what the Bible teaches, that there's an open-mindedness with regards to science, that oftentimes Christians have had a tendency to have a very closed-minded attitude and view towards science, which I don't think actually comes from Scripture when it's properly understood, that there's, much, there's an opportunity for us to be much more open-minded with regards to something like science, that uh, there's, there's opportunity for us to be much more open-minded even with something like politics. 
something which Christians have a tendency to be very closed-minded about. What's interesting is that Christians are often closed-minded in completely opposite directions. I have friends who can't understand how a person could possibly be a Christian and be a Democrat. And I also have friends who can't understand how somebody could possibly be a Christian and be a Republican. We're closed-minded, but in two completely different directions. And so I find myself all the time trying to show that, that the Bible is actually quite a bit more open-minded, and in fact, that, that open-mindedness is actually one of the central themes that emerges throughout the New Testament. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, when you look throughout the Gospels, one of the central themes that you find is his open-mindedness in comparison to the closed-mindedness of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is always being accused, really, of being too open-minded. The religious leaders of his day had a very closed-minded perspective of who God's people should hang out with, the kinds of people that they should hang out with. And and you find them always uh, getting upset with Jesus because he would hang out with these people. He had a much more open-minded view of of who God's people could and should uh, hang out with. And so we we find this over and over again. We find that the the religious leaders of his day had a very closed-minded view about the kinds of foods that uh, religious people could eat. And so Jesus comes and he brings this incredibly open-minded view and perspective of the kinds of foods that are appropriate for God's people to eat. So we see the central theme throughout the Gospels is this this open-mindedness of Jesus. And And then Paul picks it up as well. And we find that Paul is incredibly open-minded and, and, and he's kind of blowing open the doors that the religious culture can't understand. And, and, and he's talking about how as Christians we need to be more open-minded in terms of different cultures. And we need to realize that Christianity can manifest itself in different cultures. And in fact, you could even argue that, that the book of Galatians, some might even argue that one of its primary themes is Paul's trying to get them to be more open-minded about the kinds of people with whom they can interact. And so Paul goes around all the time talking about, really, his open-mindedness. He says, he says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. I became like them. I acted like them. And, and, and to the Gentile, I became like a Gentile. And, and so I, I acted like them. He says, I have become all things to all people. So we see this incredible open-mindedness within the Gospels and within the ministry of the, of the early church. And then, it comes to sex. And all of a sudden, it gets very closed-minded. It's interesting. Paul has this incredibly open-minded attitude towards just about everything. But then when it comes to sex, all of a sudden, he gets incredibly closed-minded. In fact, you might say that there are really two things that Paul is incredibly closed-minded about. Jesus and sex. He's incredibly closed-minded. He's closed-minded. He says, no, no, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only God that you should worship. Jesus is the only religious leader who rose from the dead, demonstrating his divinity. There's no question. You don't worship other gods. Jesus alone, exclusively. So he's incredibly closed-minded with regards to Jesus. And he's incredibly closed-minded with regards to sex. In fact, within uh, the first couple centuries, there are historians who, igno- who notice that, 
that the surrounding cultures basically observed two things about Christians that stood out. They were incredibly exclusive in terms of their worship of Jesus and their sexual restraint. That's kind of what marked them out. Why is this? Why is Paul so open-minded about just about everything, but then he's closed-minded about sex? We see this incredible closed-mindedness about sex. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Let's unpack this for a little bit. Let me just give you a biblical definition of sexual immorality. And then you'll see how closed-minded it really is. Sexual immorality, as far as the Bible understands it, is thinking about or engaging in any sexual act outside of the committed marital relationship between a man and a woman. Let me say that again. It's pretty close-minded. The biblical definition of, of, of sex and sexual immorality is that sex, any a sexual immorality is thinking about or engaging in any sexual act outside of the committed marital relationship between a man and a woman. I mean, that's close-minded, right? I, I, I agree. I mean, that's incredibly close-minded. It, the question is, why? Why is he so close-minded about this? Now, it's incredibly close-minded. However, I do want to say, as I tie my shoe, I think I need to do double knots with these shoes or I'm going to trip. Paul is incredibly close-minded with regards to sex. The New Testament is incredibly close-minded. But it isn't old-fashioned. You see, a lot of people think, oh, that biblical sexual morality, that's just so old-fashioned. The irony, actually, is that biblical morality was actually the original sexual revolution. We think of the sexual revolution, and we think of the 60s, and we think of this massive cultural revolution turning away from Christian and biblical morality. That was the revolution, turning away from Christian morality. But, but actually what we find is that when Paul is preaching this in the, the people in Ephesus, this is actually the, the sexual revolution, and pagan morality is old-fashioned. He's saying, give up that old-fashioned pagan morality and embrace true godly morality. This was the original sexual revolution. So, biblical morality, it's not old-fashioned, but it certainly is closed-minded. Why? Why is Paul so closed-minded, right? I mean, look, he says, I become all things to all people, right? He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. Why doesn't he say, to the promiscuous, I became promiscuous? To the fornicators, I became a fornicator. Well, why doesn't he say this? Why isn't he willing to be open-minded about this? Why is he so close-minded? And he's not just close-minded about it. He takes it very seriously. It's a serious close-mindedness. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. He says you need to take this very seriously. There shouldn't even be a hint of this. I think he's talking about the importance of 
of setting boundaries and establishing, look, I need to be really careful to not get anywhere near this because the temptation can be so strong. that We've got to take this very seriously. And I think that for each one of us, that means setting our own boundaries, establishing rules for ourselves that will help keep us from moving too far in this direction. Setting boundaries. Setting boundaries is basically making your own laws for yourself. Now, what's important is that when you make these laws for yourself, you don't impose them on everybody else. That's legalism. Right? But you, you, when you, it's important, it's a sign of maturity to actually make laws for yourself. It just becomes legalistic when you say everybody else needs to follow these same laws. So, so we need to do things, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. If this is something that you, you struggle with, that you have a tendency towards, then you might need to set up some very strict rules, some very strict rules about uh, what you are, are willing to look at on the Internet or on television or the kinds of places that you need to go. Uh, maybe if this is an issue that you struggle with, uh, maybe instead of working out at the gym, you should get your own exercise bike in your basement. Now, of course, it doesn't mean then that anybody who goes to the gym, well, they're not doing it right. That's legalism, right? But if you need to set that boundary, that's a sign of maturity. And Paul's saying you should take it very seriously. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. Of course, this makes sense if you think about it, that he would call us to not even engage in joking or foolish talk. When we remember what Jesus says about sexual morality, he says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, then it would make sense that even joking about it uh, would not be a good idea because to joke about it, you're probably thinking about it. And so he takes this incredibly seriously. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. He takes this so seriously, he warns us that this this warning, that this is the kind of thing that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. The sexual immorality keeps you out of the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to notice when he says this, he is not saying that anybody who has, has fallen into sexual immorality at any point in their life. He's not saying that, therefore, you are excluded. He's certainly not saying that. Because if that were the case, none of us would be able to enter into the kingdom of God. When you look at how the Bible defines sexual immorality, we all realize we've all crossed this. We've all been across this line. So so none of us would make it. So, of course, at this point, you have to enter into the gospel. You have to know this that even if you have fallen, no matter what your history is, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, if you come to God and you, and you confess that, He forgives you. And you start with a clean slate. It doesn't matter how far, no matter how long you've lived in sexual immorality, no, how, no matter how bad you think it is, at any point, if you just say, God, I, I confess my, my sin. You know, I, I've been thinking about this. One of the things that I've been asked to do and called to do is to really beginning to think about leadership development and developing particularly all levels of leadership, but our elders in particular. And one of the things that I'm realizing as I think about what it means to be a gospel-centered leader is that one of the primary things that I'm looking for is not somebody who doesn't sin. I'm looking for somebody who admits it, confesses it, and wants to turn from it. That's the primary characteristic that I think all Christian leaders should have. Not that you don't sin. Of course, we, we want to move. We want to try to mature in that. 
But it starts with simply being a person who acknowledges it and is willing to admit that and confess that. Because when you do, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the heart of the gospel is that God forgives you and you can be wiped absolutely clean. What Paul's talking about here is someone who just refuses to ever turn from that. Just persists in it, never turns. And so he's warning against that. He's he's saying, you've got to take this very seriously. He says, do not even be partners with them. Now, we need to unpack that a little bit because, again, Paul isn't saying that you shouldn't hang out with people whose views on sexuality are different than yours. That's not what he means. That can't be what he means because that's precisely what Jesus did. Jesus hung out with people whose views on sexual immorality were very different. So Paul's certainly not saying that you shouldn't hang out with people whose views are different. He's certainly not suggesting that you look down on them, that you judge them for that. If we all recognize that we're sinners, we realize we have absolutely no place in looking down on them. In fact, in fact, especially when you look at something like sexual immorality, I think we need to have the mindset, a certain set of respect for their view because we realize how weird this view is. We should be willing to say, look, I, I get, I mean, this seems really close-minded. I can see why you wouldn't see it this way. Now, it's not that we shouldn't even hang out with them. We should even show respect for them. You know, I think, I think there is this increasing sense amongst Christians that people who hold to a biblical Christian sexual morality are increasingly being disrespected. The people who hold to a Christian morality are being looked down upon because of their views of sexual morality. And to be honest, I'm not sure that we should be surprised by that. Because I think we have to be honest that when you look at the history of the church, we haven't always been very respectful towards other people's views either. And so we need to change that. We need to say, look, I, I can see why you would, wouldn't go along with this. I, I understand this seems close-minded. I, I respect where you're coming from. Paul isn't saying that you shouldn't even hang out with these people. He's saying just don't engage in what they're doing. Don't be partners with them. So I don't think that Paul is being a jerk. I don't think he's being judgmental. But he is being closed-minded. And again, why? Why, if Paul is so open-minded, why, if the New Testament seems to be so open-minded about so many things, why is it so closed-minded about sex? To answer that question, we have to answer another question. And that is, what is the meaning of of sex. What is the meaning of sex? Now, even just asking that question should get us thinking because it's implying that there is meaning to sex. And actually, I think it's interesting when sex loses its meaning, when it becomes meaningless, one of two things can happen. When sex is meaningless, one of two things can happen. One, it can become unimportant. If it's meaningless, it becomes unimportant. But oddly enough, a second thing can happen, and that is that if it's meaningless, it can become overly important. So first of all, let's talk about this. When something becomes meaningless, it becomes unimportant. Let me just give you kind of an, uh, an example of this. 
if you have a paper towel and you have your, a blanket that your mother or your grandmother knitted for you. Okay, one has meaning and the other is meaningless. And of course, what we discover is that something that is meaningless, you can do whatever you want with it. A paper towel, if there's a spill, you'll, you'll clean it up. Maybe you'll blow your nose with it. Maybe you'll make a paper airplane out of it. Because uh, it's meaningless. It's unimportant, so you can do whatever you want with it. Uh, now, uh, you, the blanket that your grandmother knitted for you because it's meaningful, you're a little more careful with what you do with it. But if it's meaningless, you do whatever you want. It's unimportant. You can do whatever you want with it. And I think to many in our culture, because sex has lost its meaning, well, then it's only, you can do whatever you want with it. So when sex loses its meaning, it can become unimportant, which means you can do whatever you want with it. But interestingly enough, when sex loses its meaning, it can also become overly important. When things lose their meaning, sometimes they become overly important. In other words, you see, when something has meaning, what that means is that the thing points to something that is more important. Let me say that again. When something has meaning, what that means is that the thing points to something that is more important than the thing. But when it loses its meaning, then oftentimes what can happen is that the thing itself actually becomes the most important thing. I'll give you an example of how this can happen. This can actually happen uh, when, in religion, when a robust faith degenerates into mere religious practice. And this is something that we see in the Old Testament. We we finally, let me give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were these purity laws, dietary restrictions, uh, physical uh, cleansing of the body, cleansing of the hands. And this purity, this kind of physical purity was intended, it had meaning. And the meaning pointed to something deeper. It was to remind them of their call to moral and spiritual purity. So this, these things, these, this, these rituals and activities and whatnot... The deeper meaning was the moral and spiritual purity that it was supposed to remind them of. By the time of Jesus, what it seems to have happened is that that deeper meaning had been lost. And so these activities became meaningless. But what's interesting is that even though they became meaningless, it didn't mean that they got rid of them. They actually got more important. That's what they started to focus on. That became the thing because it was no longer about the deeper meaning. So that became more important. And I actually think that in some segments of Christianity, this has happened with sex. That sex has become meaningless, and rather than becoming unimportant, it's actually become overly important to the point where I think that there are some parents who are more concerned with their children not having sex before they get married than actually knowing Jesus. That's what their focus is. Oh, you've got to stay sexually pure. You've got to stay sexually pure. And that seems more important than whether or not they actually come to know Jesus at all. Of course, if your child comes to know Jesus and, and comes to really grow in their relationship with Jesus, well, guess what? That's going to begin to change their heart, and it's going to change the way they think about such things as sexual immorality. But we've got to get what matters right. What happens with sex is sex loses its meaning. It becomes overly important. So, again, this brings us back to the question then. Well, what is the meaning of sex? What is the meaning of sex? And the first thing I want us to observe is that sex is about more than pleasure. 
Sex is about more than pleasure. It's not about less than pleasure. It's not that it's not intended for pleasure at all, and I need to say that because, again, there have been historically streams of Christianity that have tried to downplay pleasure to the point where uh, some have almost felt dirty about enjoying it. I actually have a friend, believe it or not, who told me that, that he felt very shameful for how much he enjoyed consummating his marriage. It was something he had to deal with because somehow he'd, it kind of had been, well, sex isn't really about pleasure. You shouldn't really enjoy it, right? No, look, read the book of Song of Songs. You read that, you read that book, and what you're going to discover uh, is that right, sex is definitely about, about pleasure. When you read that, um, you're going to want to have a glass of water, uh, a fan on, and you're going to want to make sure that the kids have gone to bed. Certainly, sex is about pleasure, but it's about more than pleasure. Sex is about more than pleasure, and sex is about more than procreation. Of course, it's not about less than procreation. Sex certainly is about procreation, uh, and I actually think I need to say that because what's interesting is that in our culture, there seems to be a, a breakdown mentally in how this is understood, that the question of whether or not I'm going to have sex and whether or not I'm going to have a child seem to be two completely different questions in our culture today. It's as if they're not even related. I don't know. Should I, should I have sex or should I have a baby? It's like, it's like, should I, you know, should I get an orange at the grocery store or should I, should I go to Cancun for my vacation? It's like they're just not even in the same category. And so I just, I feel like I need to remind us that they are related. I can't believe I actually have to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it just so that you all know this. Sex is where babies come from. Yeah, I think our culture seems to have forgotten that. And so we need to, we need to see this. And, and I won't go into this more, but certainly this is part of the reason for the closed-mindedness of the biblical worldview with regards to sex is this relationship between sex and having a baby. So sex is about more than pleasure. It certainly is about pleasure. It's about more than procreation. When we get to this third dimension of the meaning of sex is where we really get to the heart of what the biblical understanding of sex is. When we get to this third dimension of the meaning of sex is when we really begin to understand why Paul is so close-minded about this. So what is this third dimension, this third meaning of sex? Well, interestingly enough, to find it, all you have to do is just move a few verses down. In the book of Ephesians, I think Paul sort of has this in mind. Verse 25, let me read verse 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is the ultimate meaning of biblical sex? It is about... Oneness and commitment. Oneness and commitment. 
You see, what I love as I think about how Paul must have been thinking as he's writing this in Ephesians is in the passage that we're focusing on today, in this passage that I just read, we're going to look, on this, look at this in more detail in a couple of weeks, but the passage that we're looking at today, Paul pretty much just says, don't do it. Don't Sexual morality, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, don't do it because I told you you shouldn't do it. He sees, you know, I've got to show them. I've got to show them the bigger picture. I've got to show them why this is the case. This is so important for, for, for us as we teach others about Christian morality. It should never just be don't do it, don't do it. We've always got to show the bigger picture. Why? Why is this what God wants for us? Paul doesn't say don't do it because I told you not to do it. He goes on and explains why. And he says the real reason why I'm so closed-minded about sex is because sex is ultimately about oneness and commitment. It's about oneness. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Of course, he's quoting, quoting from Genesis 2 here, and this is a statement about the oneness of a husband and wife coming together. Now, some will take this first. And they will look at it and say, okay, uh, we should really just look at this in a sort of a spiritual sense, right? This isn't really about sex. It's just sort of a metaphor for two people coming together and being united spiritually. Uh, Others will take this and they'll see the word flesh and they'll say, well, no, this is really just talking about sex. But what's interesting is that even that... uh, that dichotomy there is, is really, a, okay, this is going to get really deep for a second, but I promise you it really does matter. This false dichotomy really grows out of a platonic anthropology. That false dichotomy flows out of a platonic anthropology. What am I talking about? Western society for thousands of years has been influenced a lot by Plato, and, in, and I'll talk particularly about this Platonic anthropology, and as Plato understood the human person, he understood the physical and the spiritual to be very separate, to be very different. And actually, for thousands of years, many people have read the Bible through that lens and thought that the same dichotomy was there. But what biblical scholars are finding is they, as they dig in deeper and they really get back to understanding the way, the way the biblical writers thought and even what's really just on the pages of the Bible themselves, what they're discovering is that they had a much more holistic understanding of the human person. So, for example, when you see the word soul in the New Testament, uh, really, more often than not, it's not really talking about something that is absolutely distinct from the body. It's actually usually talking about the entire person, but from a spiritual perspective. And you find as you look at the biblical understanding of the human person, that there you can't draw this hard and fast line between the physical and the spiritual. And I think what's incredibly interesting about that is, is how today this is the kind of thing that science is helping to back up. Science is actually bringing down the platonic worldview by showing that you can't draw such hard and fast Line. So, so, for example, uh, just in something like depression, right? depression is not simply a spiritual condition. It's also a physical condition. We're starting to understand this more and more, that there's an interaction there, that when somebody has depression, there, there may be a physical uh, component to that. But, of course, what's interesting is that we're also finding is that some things that we thought were merely physical are also have a spiritual component to it. 
that, that actually people who tend to, to be more robust spiritually and have a deeper uh, emotional contentment, they just tend to live longer. That your own spiritual health seems to affect your physical well-being as well. And so what we're finding is that you just can't draw a hard and fast line that the physical and the spiritual are, are well, it's much more holistic. Now, why is this important when we talk about sex? And here's why. Because we seem to have this attitude in our culture that having sex with someone and choosing a soulmate are two different things. That who I engage in in terms of sex and who I unite with spiritually, that they're two different things. But I think what this is showing, and I would actually say that science is kind of backing this up, is that actually there's a link there. That when we engage in the act of sex, there's something spiritual going on there. That it's an entire oneness. You can't separate them. You've got to take this... You've got to take this seriously. Paul is calling us to embrace a biblical understanding. He's being incredibly close-minded about sex because he sees that sex is about oneness. It's about the coming together of two people physically and spiritually. So it's about oneness. And of course, related to that then is that it is about commitment. It's about commitment. Uh, One of the things that you find throughout the Old Testament in particular is that you find all of these different covenants between, between nations, between people groups, between God and, and humanity, these, these covenants, these commitments that would be made. And one of the things that you also find is that they would have signs of the covenant, signs, symbols that would remind them of the covenant that had been made. So, for example, the covenant with Noah uh, where God promises not to destroy the world with a flood again. Of course, what is the sign of that covenant? The rainbow was seen as the sign to remind God, actually, and remind us of this commitment, this covenant that he had made. And so we find throughout the Bible these signs of covenants. And what we discover is that in the same way that, that the rainbow is to Noah's covenant, the same way that circumcision is to the Abrahamic covenant, that sex is to the marriage covenant. The biblical understanding of sex is that it's a sign of the commitment that you have made to that person. You see, this is why, you see, sex isn't just a perk for the committed. That's sometimes how people think biblical morality. Well, well, it's a perk that you can have once you're committed. But actually, no, it's kind of, it's the opposite of that. It's that the act of sex is communicating that act of commitment. That in, in a sense, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's like a covenant renewal service. We talk about people from time to time. If you've been married for you know, 15, 20, 25 years, sometimes you'll have a covenant renewal service, right? Get everybody together, renew your vows. And I think that's a wonderful idea. But what's interesting is that God has built in covenant renewal services into our normal interaction of a married couple. And that is that the act of sex is designed to be a covenant renewal. But when you come together, it's a way of saying, I am, I am committed to you. So Paul's being very narrow-minded about this. He's saying you wouldn't do this with somebody that you're not really committed to. Paul's calling us to be very narrow-minded about this because it's about oneness and it is about commitment. But it goes even deeper than that. 
What I love about verses 25 through 32, and I only read through 31 because I was leaving 32, kind of unveil it, is that verses 25 to 32, it's kind of confusing. Paul's kind of confusing. You're like, well, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the relationship between a husband and his wife? Or is he talking about the relationship between Christ and his church? Well, like, which one is it? It's like he kind of goes back and forth. Like, where, where are you going here, Paul? Right? It, it goes, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own, his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. But then, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, that's going back to talking about a man and a woman coming together back in Genesis 2. But then in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, what Paul is showing us is that the ultimate, deepest meaning of sex is not that it points to our oneness and commitment with our spouse, but that it points us to and reminds us of the oneness and the commitment that God has with us. And so this leads Tim Keller in his book on marriage to say what I thought was a pretty profound statement. He said, the primary meaning, I have it written down so I don't mess it up. Sex is primarily a way to know God. Sex is primarily a way to know God. That is, it points us to the oneness and the commitment that we have made with this person, that that's actually then to point us beyond that to the oneness and the commitment that Christ has made to us. And this has, I think, incredibly important implications for those of you who are single. And here's what I think this reveals to those of you who are single, is that when you come to understand what the deepest meaning of sex is, that sex is about knowing God, that you can know God without that. That the very thing that it's pointing to, the deepest meaning, is something you can have without it. In other words, sex is a spiritual discipline, but there's a lot of other disciplines. That by simply coming before God and spending time in His Word and, 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 and praying to Him and meditating on Him and spending time with God, the time that you don't really have when you're married. You don't have as much time when you're married. Paul even says that. But when you're single, you have that time, and so you can come together in ways that married people can't. And you can spend time with God, and you can come to know the oneness and the commitment that God has for you. Sex is primarily a way to know God. It points us to the oneness and the commitment that God has for us. Of course, what's so ironic about that is then it points us to the reality that God is committed to us. God desires to be one with us even though we have failed sexually. It points us to the oneness and commitment that even though we have failed sexually, He still loves us. And so this this gives us this tremendous opportunity that no matter what our sexual past has been, the question isn't what did we do before, the question is what are we going to do now? What am I going to do 
as I move forward? And and am I going to embrace the biblical view of sexual morality and all of its closed-mindedness because I see that it points me to the reality of this oneness and commitment that I'm called to with this person, but even beyond that, it reminds me that God is committed to me and wants to be one with me. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you... And we proclaim, Lord, that there is much we do not understand. God, you have called us to live in a world that sees things very differently, particularly in this area. God, I pray that you would call us, as we have seen throughout this series, and even to what this ultimately points to, and that is that we're called to be the means of reconciliation in this world. But we can do this through our, the way in which we engage in sex and relationships. God, I pray that you would help us to know how to interact with those who see this differently, Lord. pray that we would approach them with grace, with humility. But God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to this. pray that by your Spirit, Lord Jesus, we would embody this that our culture would see what true oneness and true commitment can be about. I could see what that looks like in a marriage. More importantly, Lord, that it would point them to the God who loves them and wants to know them more than they can possibly imagine. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.